you don't know me, my name's Reed. I'm one of the staff people here. Really glad to have you with us this evening. This is a media fast introduction. It's a pretty creative title, isn't it? Isn't it, Ivan? Do you like that one? Or, I'll give you more. You know I've got more. Revolutionary, sure, but what we want is love or a flight from death or a famine of silence. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Anybody know where that's from? Amos chapter 8. Here's a question. If we had a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, would we care? Would it make any difference to us? If we had a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, would we even know? Not of hearing the word, not of hearing the word of the Lord in the sense of Bible verses only, although I suspect that a lot of us uh, are getting along as it is without much scripture running across our ears on a regular basis. Uh, but the word in the sense of God, when God is trying to speak to us out of the big and small events of our lives, through uh, the discomfort of a friend reaching out to us in the feeblest way that they can muster in their distress, a way so quiet uh, that we might miss it if we're not really giving them our attention, or through the joy of an invitation to morning coffee uh, at a time when we would rather be asleep, or of the word of the Lord through the, just the challenge and the tension of growing up in college, of trying to establish yourself away from your parents even as you still depend on them for so much, if suddenly it became impossible to hear God speaking his word in these ways and in so many others, uh, would we even notice? Do we notice now? For the Israelites, regarding uh, back to Amos here, for the Israelites, the word spoke forth from the priests and the prophets, uh, which, which maybe seems foreign enough to us that we might wonder what this has to do with us at all because, you know, we don't have prophets and priests, most of us. Um, but, but the thing is that the priests and the prophets, they still spoke for God to the people out of the stuff of their own lives, with livestock, uh, with bread, with pottery, the homeless person sitting at the gate. They used all of these things to speak to the people. And for the Israelites, were all of this to suddenly just become like mute and inaudible. If they were forced to hear it the way that you try to decipher messages from your friend when you're underwater together at the pool, you remember playing that game? Uh, if, you, if they had to hear it that way, it would be the end of them because uh, the word of the Lord, whichever voice it came through, was life to them. And so silence, says God in Amos, and it's like a death sentence. Why silence? Why so harsh, Lord? Uh, here's why. The Israelites had given themselves over pretty much all the way to corruption. You read this chapter and you'll see uh, Amos is talking about dead bodies are everywhere. The needy are being trampled on uh, simply for sticking a hand out. Uh, rich folks already with more money than they know what to do with uh, are tipping the scales and they're cooking the books to squeeze just 
just a little bit more from those who are already struggling to pay for their kids' insulin shots. And in that way, the willful silence of God in response to this wasn't so much an arbitrary punishment as it was just the natural continuation of the Israelites' apparent willfulness to just deafen themselves in the first place. They were, not already, they were already not listening. That's how they ended up in that state. And so then God goes on in Amos to predict probably pretty easily uh, that the Israelites eventually will come scraping back, desperate for life surrounded as they were by the death that they had made. And what they would be met with when they came back would be a starving, a starvation uh, for a word of life from him. God knows that we, too, seek relief from our own corruption. Amos's indictment uh, of ignoring the needy at best, or uh, more truthfully, of oppressing them for gain, uh, his indictment of bloodshed everywhere, that, that applies, I mean, as readily to us in America now as it would have for them then, okay? These, these are not things that are foreign to the place that we live. But perhaps the difference between us and the Israelites is that while when desperate enough in their death, they would go searching for God again for the only voice, <laughs> excuse me, for the only voice that they knew would actually give them life, I think we tend to go to any other voice that we can find, and God knows that there are enough of them. There are so many voices to listen to. So God lets us have them, and I, I imagine God, instead of, instead of us, instead of letting us have silence, what we have is overwhelming noise. Neon amplified, 10-second, RSS-fed voices are everywhere. You can't get away from it. You carry it in your pocket all the time. So the question, a question, as we head into the media fast is, how do we use these voices? How do we use this media? Do we use it to help us engage with the heart of things? Or do we use media to escape from life as it is? to avoid uh, the real heart of what life is about, of what your life is about at this moment. TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, New York Times, ESPN, Spotify, a hundred other apps, words and images everywhere, and yet still, I suspect, a famine of the word that we need most. And I thought that our media habit, it's actually a form of lust, and you can think of lust as this, uh, the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. The craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. That's Beekner's, by the way. We are dying of thirst, and yet what we crave is salt in the form of a thousand different voices on the medias. Uh, I think that we feel, and probably are, kind of powerless against the media everywhere, uh, against social media, against other kinds. Uh, if we're honest, we may feel something is wrong, but we don't exactly know what to do about it. Is anybody with me on that? I've talked to enough of us to know that like, we detect that something is off, and we would rather it were different, and we don't know what to do about it. 
and, and more than once, uh, we've noticed that our relationship to our phones and to the media that they constantly bombard us with, uh, that we exist in sort of an abusive relationship with it. Like, we know it's harmful, uh, and we are aware that it makes us feel not great, uh, that it makes us less than what we want to be and less than what we are meant to be, that every time we try to put it away, it's like only a day or two before we're back at it. And we know that we shouldn't be back at it, and yet we're back at it. And so maybe I was thinking, what do we need to hear going into this fast? And maybe what we need more than some preacher to just stand up here uh, and rattle off statistics about how many hours a day you're spending doing what, or just giving you the facts about how social media companies like use your data to sell you things and keep you hooked. Uh, maybe, maybe what we need to do is just to be able to name what we're actually doing uh, when we're with our screens. Because I'm not sure how much we really understand it or take time to understand maybe what's actually going on. So in a lot of religions and mythologies, the power of a thing over people is often in its being unknown and not understood. And this is why names are so important in these stories, right? So to name a thing is not just to put a label on it, but it's to actually understand it. And when you understand it, you then gain some power over it. So you guys like Harry Potter? Harry Potter fans? Yes? Think of Harry Potter. Think of how everyone is afraid to speak you-know-whose name. I'm not even going to say it right now. And think of how that gives him a hold over them. And so Dumbledore, at the end of the first book, he says, call him Voldemort Harry. Always use the proper names for things. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. And then I could add, and a lack of understanding of it increases its power over me. And it's not magic, okay? Uh, I, I'm, it, one, a thing's power over us, it, it depends on a sort of deception, or a lack of understanding. And so when we name it, I'm, uh, and we're, when we're going to name what media is doing with us, uh, it's not like, it's not an incantation, okay? It's not like we say this magic thing and we dispose of it, but, but it's, it's that, it's just another way of saying it, that we're finally going to see it for what it really is. And then once we see it for what it is, we can do something about it. And, and by the way, naming something, what's really going on, like underneath the thing that's happening, is not as easy as it sounds. This is the work of poets like Pauly G and philosophers like Derek. You're a pretty good philosopher. Conrad. Like therapists like my wife. They're, they spend their lives trying to name things so that we can understand them so that we can live well. Consider Voldemort one more time, okay? It's not just saying the word Voldemort. It's not like getting the courage to say it uh, is, is enough, but it's actually understanding uh, the meaning of the name that's crucial to defeating him. So his name, it's French, Voldemort. It means flight from death. And once you understand that like his greatest fear is dying and that everything he does is motivated by a desperation to escape it, well, then... You can suspect that he would use a horcrux, and you can understand why, and now you understand what to do about him, okay? This is the case with more than just Harry Potter, obviously. Counselors, they, they, they go through with their clients just first listening to their experience and helping them to name it. Was well, it depression? Is it anxiety? 
Is it bipolar? Is it something else? And only then can they treat it well. So that brings us around to the question, what's going on with us and media, and media and us? And I think a lot of us have given sort of a sideways glance to it, uh, to the issue, and we think, ah, it's just merely a matter of, attra uh, of distraction and attention, right? And we just assume the problem is like, more or less, I lack some kind of self-control. I lack the necessary powers of focus, uh, and I just need to be able to redirect my attention. Uh, almost like we're, we're like these zombies that are strolling through rows of slot machines. Like you're just a raw, lifeless center of attention that can go here or that can go there, and we've put it in the wrong place, and now we need to put it in the right place. I think there's more to it than that. Anybody here ever heard of David Foster Wallace? DFW? Rest in peace. Uh, he questions this assumption. Uh, and he was actually questioning it way back in this essay that I love to read. Uh, one time on spring break, on the van ride on the way down to spring break, I read the entire like 50-page essay out loud to the van because it was a long van ride. I read the whole thing. It was amazing. He wrote this essay in 1990, okay? 1990, when none of you were alive and we didn't even have smartphones that gave us total control over what we could consume because you know how it worked back then? Back then, you were forced to sit like a cave person in front of something called a television. And the content on the television was decided by a small group of people who had the power to just totally decide for everybody what was going to be on, and your only choice was whether to watch it or not, okay? That's how, can you believe that it used to work that way? It was so fascist and authoritarian. <laughs> and now it's democratic, and we can choose, and isn't everything so much better now that you have control? No. So here's what he has to say in this essay. It's called E Unibus Plurum. And it's honestly about as incisive an observation as I've come across about our relationship to media. Um, so I'm going to read it sort of a little, little bit, a little bit at length. Um, and I've gone ahead and I've subbed his references to TV. And I've just changed that to smartphones. And instead of where he says watching, I say scrolling. But everything else is exactly as he wrote it. And again, this is 31 years ago. And I, I think it's good enough that I'm going to quote it at some length here, OK? So he says, in thinking about why people sit, spend so much time sitting in front of their television or on their smartphone, he says, would mere distraction really ensure continual, massive scrolling? Smartphones offer way more than distraction. In lots of ways, smartphones purvey and enable dreams. And most of these dreams involve some sort of transcendence of average daily life. Dreams that somewhere life is quicker, denser, more interesting, more, well, lively than contemporary life as you know it. He says this might seem benign, it might not seem like a very big deal, until we consider that what good old average you do more than anything, almost anything else in contemporary life is scroll on your smartphone, an activity which anyone with an average brain can see does not make for a very dense and lively life. You ever just sit around and watch people just scrolling, does that look lively? Does that look exciting? Does that look anything like the life that they are looking at on their phone? Of course not. He goes on, he says, since smartphones must seek to attract viewers, 
by offering dreamy promise of escape from daily life. And since stats confirm that so grossly much of ordinary U.S. life is scrolling on smartphones, smartphones promises, and hang with me because this is really the key part, smartphones promises must somehow undercut scrolling in theory. Hey, you, there's a world where life is lively, where nobody spends six hours a day scrolling bottomlessly on their smartphones while reinforcing scrolling in practice. Hey, you, your best and only access to this world is smartphones. Are you getting this? Smartphones are telling you there's a world where nobody's doing what you're doing all the time, but your only access to that world is through your smartphone. You get hooked in a cycle. And he goes on, he says, as a treat, like a snack, a dessert, a sweet, a candy, as a treat, my escape from the limits of my genuine experience is neato. <laughs> As a steady diet, though, here's what happens when it's your steady diet. It can't help but render my own reality less attractive. Why? Because in it, I'm just one Dave, I'm just one Reed, you're just one Ivan, with limits and restrictions all over the place. And it can't help but render me less fit to make the most of my own reality because I spend all of my time pretending I'm not in it, and render me ever more dependent on the device that affords escape from just what my escapism makes unpleasant. And then he says, this is the final part, he says, my real dependence, your real dependence, it's not on your smartphone. It's on the fantasies and the images that enable them. It's on the fantasies, and I don't just, that's like, it, that word has a sexual connotation. It's not just sexual. Like, there are all kinds of fantasies that you are living out on your smartphone, and your dependence is on those fantasies, and thus on any technology that can make images both available and fantastic. He was writing about this when there were televisions, people. Like, people didn't have personal computers in 1990. He's writing about televisions. Make no mistake, we are dependent on image technology, and the better the tech, the harder we're hooked. The better the tech? He had VCRs and televisions. Like he couldn't imagine something like this back then. End of David Foster Wallace. So it turns out that you're not so much just a center of attention that needs to be turned this way or that way, but you are a center of desire that is going to fix upon whatever we love and whatever we are convinced will give us that life or, or what we love. And so somehow, in all of this mess with media and just carrying these things around with us 24 hours a day, uh, it's grabbed our attention because it's captivated our desire. But do but you hear what he's saying? It's captivated us with a promise that it cannot keep. In our scrolling and our swiping, I'm pretty sure we think we found a life that we would love to have. The problem is, it's not real, and it's not the life that we do have. And this observation is like dead on. Smartphones, promises of this life, keeps you attached to the smartphone, even as the act of being attached to your smartphone excludes you from the life that it's portraying and that it's making you desire. Are you, are you getting this? Are you seeing what's happening? What we're after, I think, really uh, is not just like to have a cool new toy. What we're after uh, is life, and we're giving it away for a fantasy one that can't ever be delivered by the thing that's promising it. And it's killing our ability to live well with the life that we have been given. 
Is it media's fault? No, not, not inherently. We can use media, we can use it to escape from life as it is, or we can actually uh, use it to connect with life as it is. And some media, here, you got the, on the backside of your sheet, there's a, there's a Punnett square. I love Punnett squares. Anybody else a big fan of Punnett squares like I am? I love it. They're super helpful tools. So, so, so here's the deal. We can, we, can, we can engage with it in two ways. Either in an escapist way, meaning I'm consuming media to escape the limits of my experience. What this tends to do is render reality less attractive. So if I spend all my time imagining that I'm Iron Man flying around in that cool suit and shooting repulsor rays, that when I'm stuck to walk on the ground like an idiot at two miles an hour, man, that's a bummer. Uh, it renders me less able to make the most of it, like DFW already said. Uh, it disconnects me from my own life. And it, it, what it does, if we just engage in this way all the time, is it creates a dependence on these fantasies, okay? We also can engage with media in order to connect. So media can be a really helpful way uh, to help me understand the depths of my experience. Anybody who's in my movie small group or who has been in it, this, in it this, is, this is what we're aiming for. We're trying to connect with the depths of our experience and understand it. And we engage in media with this, in this way, we are, uh, it, it makes life more significant. It inspires me to live the life that I have well, and it fosters a relationship with reality, okay? So those are kind of the two uh, intentions I can come to media with, to escape or to connect with the heart of things, with, with God, with reality, with the capital R real. And then there's different kinds of media, which I've just sort of called trivial and substantial, Right, so, so when I think of trivial media, and I think of escaping through trivial media, I think of like, um, like pornography as one, trying to escape uh, through trivial pornography uh, that definitely renders my own reality less attractive. Uh, also, do you guys know what unboxing videos are? Have you seen these on YouTube? Leanne said not to say this, but I'm going to say it. Those are just pornography for children. It's exactly the same thing. I'm dead serious. In principle, it is exactly the same thing. It just creates a desire that can't be fulfilled, and it's all about just ogling at this stupid thing. Um, other like, trivial media that I think of are just like stories that are all about power-driven stories. So like Call of Duty, if you play Call of Duty, that's this. Um, 90s action movies. Social media is a lot this way. As you get older, real estate listings become a way of escaping your reality by looking at real estate listings. And it's, I'm not kidding, it's real, people. It's so real. Um, I can also escape via what is substantial media. So one of the ways I thought about that I do this is um, like news and opinion pieces and essays. I can, be, I can become uh, so concerned with like doing what's right in Afghanistan and completely ignore like how I'm treating my mom, right? It's a way of escaping from what God has put in front of me to deal with. Um, or like Lord of the Rings. You guys like Lord of the Rings? I love Lord of the Rings. It's totally substantial. When you read it purely for the lore, you're like escaping. You're not connecting. Or like Marvel movies. Anybody like the Avengers? I'm not here to dog on those. They can be totally substantial. But a lot of times we watch them as this power fantasy and we just like the cool action sequences and all I'm doing is escaping from my reality through what's substantial. Okay, we can also connect. We can connect through what's trivial. We really can. I can play Call of Duty with my friends and it's a gateway to relationship. 
Now, you got to be honest, because a lot of us are like, well, yeah, I totally do it to be with my friends, but you never actually talk to each other. You're both just sitting there staring at the screen. There's a real connection going on. Or through sports, right? This happens all the time with sports, where there's a community that can form around that. It can connect me to something is, that's real. But the difference between what, how I use trivial media in escaping or connecting is that in escaping, trivial media becomes an end in itself. It exists for its own sake. When I'm connecting, I'm using it as a means to something bigger, okay? And then uh, the last one, I can connect through what is substantial. And there's like a million amazing examples here. Um, if you've ever watched a Terrence Malick movie, or if you like Kendrick Lamar, or if you've ever read anything by Flannery O'Connor, like there's so much stuff to connect with there. And so, of course, substantial things want to push you towards connection. And trivial, and this is what we need to be aware of, trivial things, like you can use them well, but they tend to push you towards just that, that kind of banal, boring escapism. Are you with me? Okay. Hear me. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to escape through trivial media, like inherently. Think of it more like a nutrition pyramid. When you escape through trivial media, it's like you're just only living on a diet of like Miller Lite and Snickers bars. And that's all you're living on. It's not good for you. It's going to kill you in the end. But sometimes it's all you can do to stay alive. You, it's like I don't need anything to render my reality less attractive. It's already pretty hideous. I get that. Sometimes you need to escape a little bit. It's okay. It's fine. Speaking of food metaphors, and this is kind of getting to sort of the last thing I want to say, um, <clears throat> and something I want us to think about on the media fast, which I'm going to explain that to you here in a minute. There's a Hebrew word that I really love uh, that has a lot to do with this. It's a fun one to say. The word is haga. You got to kind of, it's H-A-G-A-H, but you got to roll the R or the G in the middle. You ever think about rolling your Gs? It's pretty fun. Haga. You say that? Haga. Okay, just so it's an onomatopoeia like like TikTok or murmur. Um, that is it. It is what it sounds like if when you roll that middle G, ha! Because what it means is to growl or to like to like it's it's the sound that a bear makes when it's protecting its den. Okay, a bear hagas or uh, when a when a dove is like cooing. It's haga is like the sound that comes from the breast of the dove, or it's, it's what a lion does over its dinner. If you've ever watched one of those National Geographic specials, when, when a lion lies down with its giant paws over a carcass and it's just shaving the meat from the bone and it's like, that sound is haga. It's used in the Bible for lots of animal things. So it's somewhat surprising when we find it in the very first psalm that says this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he has day and night. Blessed is the one who growls gutturally over the scriptures, who coos them like a dove. Now, in English, if you're looking at your English Bibles, which I don't think any of you are looking at anything right now, so that's fine, but the word is meditate. Blessed is the one who meditates, which is fine. It's just that Jewish mind has a very different conception of how meditation works than we do, okay? So to meditate is less like a yogi, like Zen-like doing their stretches, or less like a quiet time reflection with your cup of coffee. And it's, it's more like a bear guarding her cubs. That's what it is to meditate 
the word of God, to meditate on the word of God. And this way it gives the sense that your whole self is almost like aggressively involved. Blessed is the man who wrestles and devours the scriptures and the word of God and puzzles over them like his life depends on it because it does. A lion haggaiing its prey and a person haggaiing the scriptures are aggressively and intently focused on devouring every sinew and every fiber from the carcass until there's nothing left but bone. Blessed is the man who sucks every bit of life out of it and digests it and literally incorporates it. That's how you give the word a body and it gives you life not just by thinking about it pleasantly, but by devouring it in the way that, you know how you make food a part of your life? You don't think about how good that food would be to be a part of your life. You don't even like think about the composition of it and understand like all the flavors and the way it's baked. That's not how you make it a part of your life. You make it a part of your life by eating it. Eugene Peterson talks about our holy scriptures as well as any media, and this is getting to what I was saying before, any media that is intended to change our lives and not just stuff some information into the cells of our brain. And he talks about the kind of engagement that it warrants. And he describes it like this. He says it should be ruminant and leisurely, a dalliance. You like that word? A dalliance. With words and images and not just wolfing down information. And that is so much of what like trivial media encourages. It's a habit it makes us as we just wolf down information. Scroll, 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 next, 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 next. You're just wolfing down. You're like, oh, did you see that thing that happened? That was cool. That's a cool bit of information that I learned. Oh, did you see that stat on that thing? That's a cool thing that I learned. We're really good at spitting back out information, but we don't know how to live wisely. Another guy, Friedrich von Hugel, he put it this way. He says, it's like letting a very slowly dissolving lozenge melt imperceptibly in your mouth. When's the last time you engaged with any kind of media like that? Haggah doesn't treat the words of God as ornaments to be hung on the tree of your life. And Peterson goes on to say, he says, these are words and images intended, whether confrontationally or obliquely, to get inside of us to deal with our souls, to form a life that is congruent with the world that God has created, the salvation he has enacted, and the community that he has gathered. Is that how we're engaging with media? In a way, in order to form a life that is congruent with the world that God has created and the salvation that he has enacted and the community that he has gathered. And Peterson says, such writing anticipates and counts on a certain kind of reading, a certain kind of watching, a dog with a bone kind of reading, a reading that enters our souls as food enters our stomachs, spreads through our blood, and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. That's a lot different than our five-minute energy habit of consuming things. I do know how to haggah, but I confess, and maybe you can relate with me, I've haggahed the wrong things often enough. Like I've devoted myself so fully to various kinds of media, pouring over them like my life depends on it, making things that are really just sweets to be by far the largest portion of my diet. So in 2007, my wife Leanne and I, we lived with a very dear friend of ours. His name's Ian Franz, just one of the funniest and kindest people in the world. And all three of us loved, and I'm, I mean, we deeply loved The Office. Back before Netflix streamed everything online, this was in 2007, before that happened, if you wanted to binge on a show, you know what you had to do? You had to own the box set of DVDs. You guys even know what a DVD is anymore? Probably not. 
So get this. When the third season of The Office released on DVD, I'm not kidding, it was a midnight event for us. The three of us went to Walmart at midnight and had them dig it out of a box for us, and then we went home and we watched it till like 2 or 3 in the morning. We watched all the time, and we quoted it all the time, instinctively, automatically, without thinking. Do you have anything like this? In any given conversation, we could just on the dot channel like Jim or Pam or whoever and quote them. And it wasn't just a quote uh, like taken out of context, tacked on for a cheap laugh. Like we lived and breathed this show so deeply that in any situation, we could just like mentally search the entire office catalog in an instant and find a perfectly appropriate reason to exhale the words of Michael Scott or Dwight Schrute. Like they literally shaped how we viewed the world. Do you have a thing like that? I played so much Halo in college that I would walk around campus just imagining where spawn points for like sniper rifles and rocket launchers would be. It was a part of my life. It was ingrained in my brain at a deep level. This is what it means that we haga something so that it goes to a level deeper than cognition and your brain. There's a, a savoring, a slow internalizing, literally an incorporation into the material of your body. That's the effect of haga. The text, whatever your text is, becomes a part of you. Is the office evil? Of course not. The office is wonderful, substantial even. We can haga different types of media with different intents, either to escape from the life that God has given us or to connect with. So what we ought to be asking as we engage with media is not, well, is this on the blacklist or not? Is this allowed or not? But rather, how am I using it? And how does it encourage me to use it? Does it connect me with the weightier matters of the scriptures and the faith? Like, does it bring me into a conversation with love and justice and mercy and grace and forgiveness? Does it encourage or press or challenge me to live these things in the way that Jesus would have me live them? Or does it rob me of the ability to desire or even to, like, consider such things and live faithfully? This, centrally, is what the media fast is for. We're spending a week uh, not just abstaining from, like, smartphones, etc., to show how cool we are, to show how countercultural we are for a week, but we're trying to give ourselves a chance uh, to, to breathe for a second, to step outside of our habits. So on the other side of your sheet, we're going we're gonna to do this together now. You'll see that uh, there's, there's a week of stuff that we have going on. And, and on the right side... There are kind of two prompts that you are given to respond to. Um, the first is to think soberly, um, to think honestly, but also like you, you can challenge yourself a little bit with this. Like don't just give yourself a pass and be like, I'm not going to watch any YouTube shows about knitting when you've like never watched a YouTube show about knitting before. Uh, but, but to think soberly and to be realistic but also to, to challenge yourself a little bit you know what I mean uh, and to think about what you what would be good for you to step away from for a week uh, maybe it's Netflix altogether maybe it's all social media like there have been people before where they just delete every social media app off their phone and lo some of them never even put them back on 
Uh, maybe it's maybe it's just the one thing. Maybe it's music at a certain time of the day when you always are leaning on music to regulate your mood or something like that. Okay. Uh, but to think realistically, soberly, to challenge yourself, what would be good to give up? But it's not just a matter of giving something up either. Like there's a positive aspect to this. And I'm going to talk about this in a second, but essentially when you're turning away from something, if you're not turning towards something else, if you're just trying to give it up by sheer willpower, it's kind of a fool's errand. Uh, there's a line somewhere in Paul where he says, uh, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another in love. So in the ways that we would indulge ourselves through media all the time, take that energy, that energy's got to go somewhere. And think, how would God want me to use this to serve others in love? Like, that can be a helpful question. And so, write some goals down that you would have for this fast to keep you going and not just, like, sitting, clenching your fists, trying not to, like, get onto Instagram or whatever. Maybe you need to write a letter to your parents. Maybe you need to call them. Maybe there's somebody else that you need to have a conversation with. Maybe you need to get your friends together and put on a play. That happened once. I heard it was awesome. Whatever it is, something substantial, something positive. Uh, so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes now to just think that over. Because when we walk away from here, we're going to start tomorrow. We're going to go through uh, next Wednesday. We'll break the fast after service next Wednesday. Uh, we've got the retreat specifically situated in the middle of this. Like that was on purpose um, so that we can come together. And what part of what we can retreat from together is not just life as students, but also media stuff. You're probably going to be out places where you're going to have spotty service anyway. Uh, it'll be a chance to come together. Um, but we'll do it for a week. And then we have other things going on that you can see there, too, that we can do together. There are some times where there's going to be a meal, soup in the synoptics. Uh, staff are going to make soup, and we're going to read scripture out loud together. We're going to hurrah it together. Um, there will, Derek's going to take people to the prayer labyrinth um, Monday night. Tuesday night, I will read out loud to you. Maybe I'll read you all 50 pages of E Univis Plurum. Um, I'll read you something, and we'll have tea or coffee or whatever warm, tasty drink you want to have. Um, there, there's a number of things on there. So we encourage you to join in those with us. But yeah, take a minute now. Write some things down. That way, when you leave here, you've got something to go with, and it's not just like, oh, I forgot about it until Tuesday. Okay, go. Okay, I hope that you uh, were able to set some terms that you feel good about, something that's going to push you a little bit, that's also doable. Um, and remember that part of the fast is to give ourselves a break, to take a breath. And then when we come back, maybe we can be better at engaging with it in a healthier, more wholesome nutrition pyramid kind of way. Um, but also... Uh, it, it's, it's again, this is not just for the sake of our own piety. This is not so we can prove to God like how much we love God, but rather uh, to turn from all of those voices, like out of our own death and brokenness, like we turn to so many things. Uh, and there's this one voice actually that we need to turn to, which is the voice of life, the word of God uh, that he speaks to us in, in many different ways. And so hopefully uh, we can turn our attention and remember that he is our beloved uh, that we really do love him more because the thing is, like, to turn away from the things that we can be addicted to or enslaved to, like, we've got to remember that we've got to love something else more. Hopefully, the fast can help us uh, with that. 
Um, and I, I think of in this way, um, fasting is a sort of repentance. Where repentance, like I don't know what you know of that word, but it doesn't just mean like you feel really bad and you say you're sorry. That's not repentance. Uh, repentance is it, it's to turn around. It's to actually turn from the things that are destroying us, um, which means that as we turn away from, hopefully in fasting, we are turning uh, towards. And with that, um, I want to finish with a poem. Um, this is by Scott Cairns, <coughs> beloved poet uh, of CCF. Uh, and he's not from CCF, but CCF loves him. Uh, and this is called Adventures in New Testament Greek Metanoia, uh, which is repentance. And it goes like this. Repentance, to be sure, but of a species far less likely to oblige sheepish repetition. Repentance, you'll observe, glibly bears the bent of thought revisited and mind's familiar stamp. A quaint half-hearted doubleness that couples all compunction with a pledge of recurrent screw-up. The heart's metanoia, on the other hand, turns without regret, turns not so much away as toward, as if the slow pilgrim had been surprised to find that sin is not so bad as it is a waste of time. <clears throat> Let's remember that a way that we sin with media is not necessarily by being bad, but just by wasting the time that God has given us. Uh, let's, let's fast as a way of turning towards the words of life that can actually uh, sustain us, can give us the thing that we are looking for, uh, that we turn to all the other places to give us that they can't really give it to us. You've got to love something more. Let's pray. <coughs> we are... Uh, we're, we're kind of starving, we're thirsty. Uh, our hands are empty and we're going around uh, to a thousand different voices on our phones asking them to substantiate us, to make us whole, uh, to give us a life that's not the one that we have. Instead, Lord, would you help us to turn our eyes to the lives that you've given us, hard as they may be, beautiful as they may be, would you give us the courage uh, to face lives that can be really boring, can be not fantastical, and yet, uh, Lord, you have put what is holy in the midst of us, and you have called us uh, to love as you have loved, which really is the most extraordinary thing. Uh, if we can just turn our eyes away from bright, shiny, exciting things long enough to behold it without falling asleep, uh, help us to love you. Help us to remember how you love us, how much you love us. Can your kindness lead us to freedom? Uh, Lord, please help us this week as we're trying to step away from habits that are killing us. Uh, and you are the words of life, Lord. Where else are we going to go? Amen. <coughs>